Welcome to the Polygon Alpha podcast. This is where the Polygon community gathers insights from today's leaders in decentralized finance and crypto. I'm your host, Justin Havens, aka Crypto Texan. Let's get started. On today's episode of Polygon Alpha, we're joined by Art Lambert, who is one of the co-founders of UMA Protocol. Art, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going? Justin, it's going great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, we'd like to get these started off with just your background, Art. Like, what is your background? Um, and how did you get into decentralized finance and crypto? Yeah. Um, well, I am a Canadian. I'm Canadian uh, and a nerd, and I studied CS in college. Um, long story short, when I graduated, I was going went to university in the United States, and when I graduated, um, uh, in New York City, there was no uh, tech scene here whatsoever, and I needed to get a visa from a finance company to really stick around here. So well, I ended up working at Goldman Sachs uh, as a bond trader for eight years, which was not a path I expected to take. Um, and people get confused. They're like, what do you mean no tech scene in New York? But in, in 2005, there was no tech scene here, and it's kind of actually very cool to see that I, I think New York is now uh, the crypto center or a crypto center, um, with, a with a thriving community. But anyways, Justin, I, I worked at Goldman for eight years, learned a lot about financial markets, uh, then started a FinTech business called OpenFolio that was all about trying to help people invest better. Um, should have started a crypto business then, but didn't, uh, and that was acquired by a NASA manager in 2017. And that gave me my time to go full-time into crypto. Um, and at that time in 2017, just to remind the audience, DeFi did not exist. There was no concept. There was no term. Um, people were debating between calling it DeFi or open finance in like late 2018, if you remember that. And uh, the idea, what drew me to this space is I'm just sitting here and I, I, I was technical and I knew a lot about finance. And I was like, hey, this smart contract platform system this seems like the ideal way to uh, write uh, write financial contracts, and like we should go and try and do that. Um, and that was really the birth of a lot of the ideas around UMA. Yeah, and I was listening to one of your interviews uh, from about a year ago, I think, and you said that it's interesting because traditional finance is not as global as people might actually think. And you kind of felt like smart contracts on Ethereum actually provide this foundation to have a truly global financial system. Is that accurate? A hundred percent. One of, if, if you want to get kind of nerdy and a little bit philosophical about what we've done here, I have a view that uh, financial products and services, traditional financial and products and services, they're mostly legal contracts. Like insurance is a legal contract, uh, derivatives are legal contracts. They're mostly legal contracts where the underlying enforcement mechanism for that financial product and service is actually like legal recourse. That's how they operate. And um, that's kind of all well and good, but it's not global. It's like in the U.S., you have your U.S. products, but they're not the same as what's offered in other parts of the world. It's not like a global or Internet native system. And what DeFi has done is they've, in my opinion, it's invented a new form of contracting. So a new way of writing contracts that aren't enforced by legal recourse, but are enforced by economic incentives alone and economic incentives on a blockchain. And this is like ludicrously cool because we've invented a new form of contracting that is internet native and global by default because you don't need to know who people are, all they're doing is responding to economic incentives. And I think this is like a wildly cool and wildly powerful innovation that we've invented an entirely new way of enforcing, con an entirely new contracting system um, that just has trade-offs and pros and cons relative to traditional finance. And that's what really gets me super excited about the space. I think that is very well put, honestly. Um, and so this, so this philosophy that you had, and I guess like this moment where you realized that these smart contracts could provide this type of utility or, or revolution in financial products, this is this what caused you to found UMA protocol? And it, what does UMA stand for? 
And what I know it's it's pivoted quite a bit. Uh, UMA protocol has, but what were you trying to solve initially? And let's just kind of go through the history there. Yeah, these these, these are all great questions, and the answers are kind of like yes, yes, and yes. But um, it, it, so the original philosophy here wasn't as well articulated as it is now. This idea of inventing a new contracting system, but what was articulated was this idea that financial product and services are not globally accessible. Like you start a fintech business and fintech businesses, like you look at Robinhood, Robinhood only serves U.S. people. It's like supposed to be an internet business, but you can't open a Robinhood account as a Canadian, which I am, or in Europe or whatever, which is kind of crazy, right? So embedded from day one was this idea that the internet is global and businesses built on the internet are generally global businesses, but finance wasn't. And so that that was like a lot of the initial impetus for what UMA should be. And then the, the name stands for universal market access. So it was embedded in this idea of like, hey, how do we make markets universally accessible? Um, and that's that that was kind of core to our initial focus. Um, with regards to our path and how we got here. So we start here, we start thinking from like, Blue Ocean, blank slate, DeFi doesn't really exist. We want to bring financial contracts to blockchain. Um, smart contract platforms like Ethereum are a beautiful way of writing the if this, then that logic of a contract. Um, but we run into this Oracle problem. where, like, wait, what happens when we need data that is not native to a blockchain itself? Um, and so we spent a lot of time and energy thinking through the Oracle problem but in a fundamentally different way than say something like Chainlink or even what Maker was doing at the time, we wanted to figure out a way to get any bit of arbitrary data on a blockchain, to ask it any kind of knowable question. Um, and this was just a, a very different sort of Oracle design that I think we'll probably get to spend more time talking about. We call it now an optimistic Oracle. Um, and so our original path was, we ended up as a sort of research project, spending a lot of time thinking about how do I get any bit of data onto a blockchain in a truly decentralized way? And our path has kind of taken us more and more in that direction um, uh, over over the years. Yeah, let's go ahead and start on that. Yeah, the optimistic oracle. This is something that y'all are working on, have been working on, and it's kind of transitioning to an optimistic bridge, which we can get into as well. But let's let's start on the oracle side first. Like, how does that compare to Chainlink then? And I think when people think of optimistic solutions in the blockchain space, particularly with uh, Ethereum and smart contracts, I think the antithesis to that is zero knowledge. So are there also like zero knowledge, uh, you know, solutions to oracles as well? And just kind of want to go through the comparisons of that to lay that foundation. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, <laughs> it was great. Uh, we, we got some time. Um, so like what is UMA now? Uma is now an optimistic oracle. Um, that's, that's what we want to be. That's what we think is the biggest contribution we can make to the space. What is an optimistic oracle? An optimistic oracle at a high level is a truth machine. It's a machine that you can, you can, you can truthfully record any, any knowable data onto a blockchain and on any blockchain um, in a truly decentralized way, in a completely decentralized way. And the initial design for this is actually pretty simple, where uh, the, the optimistic oracle functions as this escalation game, where in the optimistic path, you, don't, you have to do very little. Uh, and then we'll go and talk about what happens when you are in the pessimistic path. In the optimistic path, all we do is we have anyone say, hey, here's my question. I want to know, you know who won the sports game last night. I want to know, uh, did the merge happen? I, I want to know some fact or some price, it doesn't have to be just a price data. I wanna know if this thing happened or not. I wanna know if a snapshot vote passed. These are my questions. Someone else, anyone on the network can respond to that question. And there's a challenge period or a waiting period. Provided nobody disputes that answer in that challenge or waiting period, it can get, to, it's taken as truth and we have our answer. We move on with our day. However, if there is, if someone's like, that's not right, they dispute it. And in that dispute process, those disputes, this is now the pessimistic path. Those disputes are rare. That happens like 
one in a thousand, one in 10,000 times. Um, and disputes that then, um, so because of this, the system is really lightweight, really easy to operate. Um, it can really answer any arbitrary question. Disputes then get escalated to uh, our token holders in what is a voting coin or shelling point style system where our token holders vote in this game theoretic game with a two-stage commit reveal process on what the right answer should be. And um, that part gets more complicated. It's super interesting. But the, the high level is that we, we have a, a lightweight system where anybody can request any knowable bit of data. Anybody else can respond to it. And only if that response is disputed do we need to involve this broader system to basically do what's dispute arbitration. Okay, and you're saying the disputes are rare, and that's because that the economic incentives of the protocol are aligned in such that those that are providing this information are incentivized to be truthful. Is that why they're rare? Exactly. So if you get anyone can go and respond to one of these requests, and this whole thing is very parameterizable for the protocol that's integrating it, depending on their use case, they can set different, you can set a different challenge period for how long you have to dispute something and different bonds that um, uh, uh, propose, people that propose answers, they set bonds that they will lose if they're wrong. And you can set these parameters in your system as a protocol and make it super extensible for developers to use. Um, but what you said is exactly right. Uh, somebody that proposes a response, um, which could be a human being, um, or it can be like an automated bot, doesn't matter. Anyone that proposes a response posts a bond, and that bond they'll lose if, it if they get disputed and it turns out they're wrong. Um, so the analogy here, just to maybe kind of hammer it home, um, if you think of traditional legal contracts, uh, they're also optimistically enforced. Like you and I can write a contract under the laws of the state of Texas, and our hope is that we will follow that contract, right? And if we don't follow that contract, then we can sue each other. And it's annoying and messy and costly and it's not great or whatever, but that's our enforcement process. And the same thing here is how the optimistic oracle works with just sharper and clearer incentives. So anyone can kind of say, here, here's what the answer, here's what I think the answer is. But again, the disputes, uh, disputes are meant to be rare, and we can make the incentives for triggering a false dispute very explicit and very like precise. I think it's also a good idea just to touch on, you know, why do developers need to utilize oracles to provide this data? Like, uh, there, there are limitations in the sense that blockchains cannot pull this data themselves there needs to be someone or, or protocol that pushes this information to them, correct? It's, it's worth just going back to like what a blockchain knows, right? A blockchain knows uh, what's happened on the blockchain. That's, that's right. And like that it knows for sure. And the um, security model of the blockchain itself uh, defines how accurate like that data is. And that all works great. Oracles are when you want to know something that's not on that blockchain. And, um, uh, the most common use case to date has been uh, we want to know like the price of Ethereum or the price of Bitcoin uh, because we want to build uh, a, a lending protocol that uses that to manage liquidations or we want to build a PERP protocol or, or, or things like that. And in those cases, um, something like Chainlink actually I think works pretty well. Um, they're pushing data onto a blockchain and it exists there in like a, a high frequency basis and it's, it's worked, right? But what about all the other things that a blockchain might want to know? Um, it might want to know, did this governance vote pass? It might want to know um, like facts about the world that are bespoke and aren't really related to price data. Who won an election, right? Uh, who won an election? Who won the sports game? All that other kind of stuff. Uh, how many Twitter followers does Crypto Texan have? These are all things that there are use cases where you, you might want to, you like that one, right? <laughs> there are these use cases where you, you want, um, if you need to have that data on a blockchain, what do you do? Um, well, the Optimistic Oracle is a solution built for that. So we really think this Optimistic Oracle works well in the growing world of like Web3, where when you need to know other facts that aren't just like the price data of the top 50 cryptocurrencies, th this is like, 
this is kind of the only way you can do it. You can't push every fact or data point about the world onto a blockchain. It just doesn't make any sense. So this optimist oracle, you can almost think of it as instead of pushing data, the optimist oracle function is a pull function where people request the data they want and it, they pull it onto the blockchain in a way that is um, economically secure and like truly decentralized. Okay, that's interesting. So it is like a pull mechanism as opposed to like the traditional pushing information to the blockchain then. Exactly. Like another sort of CS nerdy way of thinking about this um, would be like lazy evaluation. So this is a concept in computer science of like uh, a lazy evaluation where I'm only going to do this complication, complicated um, computation if I need to. Otherwise, I'll kind of like try to ignore it for as long as possible. And that's what's happening here too. Optimistically, we're saying, hey, here's the answer, here's the answer, here's the answer. And if people are like, yeah, looks good, no disputes, no issue, great, move on with your day. Um, it's only when someone's like, hey, wait, I don't like, I dispute this, then we go and we do this whole dispute arbitration to see who's right. And that's like a complicated, expensive process. Um, so the, the, uh, the sort of the, the point we really want to push in the space is, you know, there are many types of Oracle designs and there's trade-offs between them. Um, and to date, the Oracle design that's had the most utility and best use case has been something like a chain link or like maker style Oracle, because what we've really needed is like a credible way to get the price of Ethereum and a bunch of other cryptocurrencies onto a blockchain. And that's worked pretty well. Um, but there are definitely use cases for other types of data where that design may not be the ultimate or the, the right set of trade-offs. Uh, and um, that's a space that we're really interested in, in exploring and, and furthering kind of research up. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think that you know, UMA started as a synthetic asset type of protocol, and now you've kind of pivoted or evolved to create a separate protocol that works on optimistic oracles or like how did that transition like how did working on synthetic assets previously help prepare the team and you i guess to you know provide this service to the ecosystem they're very tied uh but in ways that uh also feel different like basically back in the day we're starting this thing and we have a thesis that decentralized finance should be useful, markets should be universally accessible. And we spent some, a lot of time and energy thinking through this Oracle problem of how to get any bit of data on a blockchain. And then we're like, how are we going to tell people about this? Like, why would they care? Um, and again, this is before DeFi existed. And the thought process then was like, well, people like tokens. Uh, let's make it so you can make a token that tracks anything using our Oracle system. Um, and these were the synthetic asset idea. And we did that. And it was kind of cool. And so it was a big learning, like dog fooding our own technology. We figured out how to improve the Oracle. We figured out how to make it work better. Um, and people thought the concept of synthetic assets was pretty cool. Like, wait, I can spin up my own token that kind of tracks anything. Um, turns out, like, the use, in my opinion, the actual current use case for synthetic assets is relatively limited. That's not what people are really wanting to do. The idea was cool, but the use cases are much more around, hey, I, I'm really interested in trading crypto or borrowing against my crypto or those sorts of things. Um, and so we've realized that like the real contribution we have here is actually this Oracle, which has always been centered to what we've done. We were just using synthetic assets to um, describe it, to kind of tell the ecosystem about it. And we're realizing now, look, DeFi is big enough. The Web3 use cases for this optimistic oracle are really big. They're big enough. Um, like, let's focus on that. And uh, maybe Justin's worth getting into the use cases for this optimistic oracle. So PolyMarket, yeah, PolyMarket's a prediction market um, that previously uh, was rather uh, centralized in how they responded to events. They... Uh, and they now use our optimistic oracle very successfully to resolve and settle um, any type of prediction market response. Um, and it's worked pretty well uh, for the last six months or so. Um, uh, 
we built this other cross-chain bridge, which we can talk about in a second, called Across. And Across uses the optimistic oracle to verify whether a transaction happened on another chain, which is a very cool use case, right? Like, did this deposit happen on this other chain? Let's ask the oracle. We get back an answer, and it, it works um, really quite well. Uh, so it's a really cool way of doing cross-chain communications and bridging. Um, and Nomad is another optimistic bridge that shares some of the similar kind of concepts too. Um, uh, and then insurance, like what if we, we have a protocol called Sherlock uh, that, it, that uses the optimistic oracle to validate whether insurance claims should happen. And there's a whole bunch more in this space too. Like if we want to create insurance for uh, whether a given event happens somewhere, the optimistic oracle is a great, a great thing to ask. Um, I could keep going, but like the use cases here are, are pretty broad and varied. And if we really think that uh, crypto and Web3 is going to grow to take over the world, which we kind of all do, that's why we're here, um, the need for there to be truthful data around any fact, to me, that seems like a, like an, like just a, a necessary thing. We, we got to have the primitive or the ability or the tools set to be able to get uh, any, any truthful fact on old blocking. And I think the approach we built is like a really elegant way to do that. Yeah, you've kind of got my mind going a little bit here, especially on the insurance side, which is something that's always kind of fascinated me in the crypto and the DeFi space and thinking about Nexus Mutual and how their structure is set up from an insurance standpoint and how maybe leveraging the technology of optimistic oracles would be a better solution for them or just a better solution for insurance claims on the blockchain in general. Uh, have y'all seen any implementation of that from the insurance side at all? This gets nuanced. Like, so first of all, I'm a huge fan of Nexus Mutual. I'm a huge fan of Nexus Mutual, a huge fan oh, of yeah. what they do. Me too. Me too. Um, Full disclosure. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's different approaches. So if you think of traditional insurance, you really, you do have a group of people that are like claims, that, that manage claims that say, hey, your claim should be made or not, right? And um, uh, you like that's they're the ones that make the decision. And Nexus is sort of set up in that model in a way that I, I, I think is like should exist, where the Nexus mutual members are the ones that are ultimately going to decide whether a claims payout should have or sh should happen or not. Um, that's not the only model. The other, there's a whole other field of insurance called like parametric insurance, where you're not valid, validating specific claims. You're making a payout based on an index or whether um, like an event happened. So an example here could be like weather, right? Uh, the uh, weather insurance where you're not saying, hey, did I crash my car? And am I uh, ordered to like, like was, is, do I need car insurance here? Instead, it's like, did it rain in New York City on this date? And it's like a factual payout, and the payout happens based on that fact or not. And I think the optimistic oracle is well-suited for this type of parametric insurance, where payouts are based on facts. Nexus Mutual is a bit blurrier, because when you get to the concept of a hack, like did a hack happen, that could be a yes or no binary decision, but it also could be nuanced, right? Where you're like, wait, what, how do you define a hack? What are the types of hacks? All that kind of stuff. And so point being like, the design space is big here. There's more than one way to do it. Um, and I, I, I think uh, we are still so, so, so early in this space. We should be exploring all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I've just kind of been under the impression that like insurance might be like the next big unlock that we need for DeFi. And I'm, I'm starting to see optimistic oracles as a potential, just the product market fit that we've been looking for in this space from just like a truth standpoint, what is true? And that's what this provides, right? Yeah. I mean, I could wrap for a while on this too. Like I think insurance in DeFi is hugely important I personally think it hasn't been unlocked yet, um, partially because insurance in DeFi is pretty expensive. 
because the stuff is still so new, right? So, you know, like it's so new and so volatile and like hacks happen all the time <laughs> that it's, it's hard to sell people insurance when it's like you're paying real money for it. That's like a hard thing to stomach. As DeFi matures, and I hope hacks become less and less frequent, um, and cost of insurance comes down, I think there's ways where um, that'll also help things grow. But the other way to look at this, Justin, is like, you know, the insurance industry itself, kind of, let's call it real world insurance, um, is really slow to move because it's, it's just like slow. And so if we did use optimistic oracles to allow people to quickly build new types of insurance um, uh, and build it efficiently, um, I feel like that's, um, that's something that could be a big unlock. Like maybe there's whether I, I was talking about this actually today with somebody, you know, oh, people on their wedding day, they're having an outdoor wedding. Seems reasonable to go buy insurance to guard against the weather raining or something awful like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And it actually, I think there's a bunch of people out there that would sell it too. Like, why doesn't that product exist? And I'd argue it's because people haven't had a technology solution to really implement that cheaply and efficiently. And I think we absolutely could. So, you know, I agree with you. There's a bright future there. Yeah. And we've kind of gotten off topic a little bit, but this is super interesting. Uh, it kind of makes me want to get Nexus Mutual on the show sometime, but I digress. Uh, let's talk about the across bridge, which is something that I'm excited about. I know you're excited about as well. Uh, how does that tie in with optimistic oracles? And what is the relationship between UMA and the across bridge? So this is a, a completely different protocol, right? Yeah. So across is a cross chain bridge. Across V2 um, moves funds, moves ETH and USDC between Polygon um, and Ethereum and Arbitrum and Optimism and Boba um, and soon Avalanche and Evmos. Um, so EVM focused chains. Um, and uh, across moves these assets, bridges these assets really cheaply. Like our bridge costs are cheaper than anyone else out there on average. Um, and it moves them um, really securely too because it's enforced by this optimistic Oracle concept. Any, any individual bridge transaction can kind of be disputed or undone um, uh, in, the, in the protocol. And um, I think it's an example like, well, I'll tell you how we, we got here in building it, but um, it's an example of a technology where I think our, 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 the risk labs, which is the foundation behind Uma, our engineering team built a really great protocol. Um, and part of the, the way they were able to do this was because this optimistic Oracle concept existed. So it was easy for them to ask the question, did this deposit on Polygon happen? They asked the optimistic Oracle that question. And if it did happen, send funds on Ethereum. That was like an easy thing for us to do. Um, and so it enabled us to build this whole other protocol. Uh, so just in terms of uh, how we got there, um, the idea for across stemmed from a, a discussion our team had like two years ago, back when when ETH2 was trying to talk about, when ETH2 was all about sharding, this is like, its design has changed a lot since then. When ETH2 is about sharding and you're trying to do cross-shard communications. And the concept here is like, well, there's all sorts of technological ways you could do cross-shard communications. There's also a way where you could just ensure uh, a message gets passed from one chain to another and optimistically enforce that insurance. So let me give you an example. Like, Justin, if you're on shard A, and let's now make this be a chain, you're on Polygon and I'm on Ethereum mainnet, right? Or you're on Polygon and you're trying to, you're trying to do something on Ethereum mainnet. You could, a really easy trusted solution is you just trust me. You're like, I'm like, hey, Justin, send me 10 ETH on Polygon and I'll send you 10 ETH on Ethereum mainnet. That like super easy to program, just one big problem, you have to trust me. Um, But if I uh, could lock up, say, 11 ETH somewhere that you could see, and I said, hey, Justin, send me 10 ETH on Polygon, I'll send you 10 ETH on Ethereum, and if I don't do it within two hours, you can take this 11 ETH I locked up and like 
take it like slash, like use the optimist oracle to say heart didn't do what he said he was going to do so i want this 11 eth back if that happened like uh that looks like a really great easy trusted solution that's what i would call like ensuring the transaction and that's ex that's essentially we did this in a much more capital efficient way this what i just described used a lot of uh, capital but effectively across does this in a very capital efficient way where we have relayers that are able to instantly move assets between chains because they bonded themselves in a way that says, hey, I'm, I'm good for this. And the optimistic oracle, you can use that concept to say, hey, this relayer didn't do what they said they were going to do. And in that case, they get, they get slashed. So what kind of asset are these relayers bonding themselves with? Are they using the UMA token? Or are they using Ether? How does that part work? Yeah, they bond themselves in whatever asset they're moving. So we're, they bond themselves in USDC or ETH or whatever else, right? Okay. And does the UMA token have any role in this bridge or with the oracles? Uh, the UMA token is very much, uh, it's all related to uh, uh, solving disputes with the oracle. So across, you can think of as a completely separate protocol like Polymarket. It doesn't use the UMA token at all. Um, it does its own thing. It just uses the optimistic oracle, right? And um, from our perspective, more usage of the optimistic oracle, the better, right? Um, the more value we secure in the optimistic oracle, the better it is for the, the UMA protocol itself. The UMA token is purely used to vote on disputes. Um, and there is a fee model bit built in here. Like using the UMA oracle, um, uh, we, we, we extract value, like the UMA token holders uh, have an e the UMA token value goes up the more value is secured by the UMA protocol itself. And so we're just incentivized to get more usage of, of the Oracle uh, of the Oracle itself. Okay. And now I'm just trying to think and compare this across bridge to other bridges like hop or I guess synapse is another one or wormhole even uh, like how would you like, what are just the, as simple as you can put it, the main differences there? Like, are people LPing to create these transactions, or is it really just bonding and leveraging the optimistic oracle? And how, how do those compare, I guess? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep it high level because, again, this gets – well, you direct me. You tell me how deep you want to go, right? But um, okay. the, first of all, all these other bridges, I actually have um, – I have a lot of respect for uh, the players in the space. I think they're all doing some interesting work. There's some that I think are not decentralized at all, and those ones I'm much, much more worried about. Um, uh, yeah, but and I, I think generally speaking, bridges are this point of centralization where there's sort of these dirty truths that a lot of them have that aren't really, aren't really. They're like, oh yeah, we have this like node that's 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 doing the validations of moving stuff between chains, but they're not really telling you that. Wait, it's like one person running that node type thing. Um, so I think that decentralized matters, and I do think these protocols will decentralize more over time. Um, the advantage of a cross is it's decentralized from day one. They optimistic, well, anyone can be a relayer, anyone can dispute things. It truly, like, there is no point of centralized control. The comparison to, like, Hop and Synapse, um, these bridges uses a use AMMs on the different chains. So, um, what they're at a very simple level they're they're saying hey um we're gonna have an amm pool on one chain that's say usdc versus like hop usdc and we're gonna have an amm pool on another chain that's also usdc versus hop usdc and we'll move the balances of the hop token between chains and then use that to send usdc from one chain to the other by basically doing a trade um in one pool moving the hop USDC to the other pool and then doing a trade and sending it off on the other side. Um, and I think that that can work pretty well. It's, it's just less capital efficient um, than because you, you have to have a lot of capital, a lot of USDC in all these places. The biggest advantage, and again, I feel like I'm getting a little too nuanced here, but the biggest advantage of what um, Across is doing that I think is just a cool financial engineering or engineering um, innovation, we have a single LP pool. Um, so you, if you're going to pool USDC, you deposit USDC on Ethereum, and that's it. Um, 
And the protocol itself will then move that liquidity to pools on all the other chains, and it will rebalance those pools as needed. So we have a more capital efficient design because the protocol is able to kind of like control where liquidity should be. Um, we then have relayers that are going and the relayers are the ones that are instantly filling people on chains where they're like, hey, I want to move money from chain A to chain B. Relayer fills them instantly. And then the relayer is able to claim their refund after this challenge period on any chain they want. So a relayer actually functions as, like they're able to move their own relay capital to the chain they want, um, and the protocol is rebalancing these pools in sort of real time. So again, I feel like I'm I'm getting a little bit nuanced here, but it's just it's like a really cool piece of engineering um, in terms of being able to balance liquidity across these pools um, in close to real time, bundling transactions, which saves on gas fees and keeping the whole thing pretty capital efficient. Oh, yeah, this is helpful. And so what I'm hearing here is that this across bridge leveraging UMA's optimistic oracle is more decentralized than other bridges, and it's more capital efficient than other bridges as well. So now I'm just kind of wondering, like, what are the trade-offs here? And I, I'm thinking, like, right, with, like, optimistic roll-ups, like optimism and arbitrum, I know this is maybe a bad comparison or a bad example it's just like when you are trying to withdraw your funds there is like this seven day withdrawal period to allow for disputes so is there anything similar to that related to this bridge or yeah it's just like what are the trade-offs if any so if you think of this um this across bridge the relayers have a two-hour delay before they can get their ca capital out so if I'm, if you want to move 100 grand or 10 ETH from Polygon to Ethereum, um, as a relayer, I'm going, uh, there's, a, there's an LP pool that exists, but as a relayer, I'm going to send you 10 ETH on Ethereum, and then I'm out that 10 ETH for a two-hour period. Like, I, I, I don't have it for two hours, and then I get paid back um, after that two-hour uh, uh, dispute window. And um, uh, I charge a fee for that. Um, but like that, that is a cost where some of these other protocols don't have to have that, that waiting period. The interesting thing is, though, when you look at this use case, like um, it makes it more decentralized because, hey, I, like anyone can say, hey, I didn't do my job as a relay. Like I, I, this is a truly the dispute function is truly decentralized. Whereas I'd say that some of these other designs, you're, you're trusting a network of nodes or validators that you don't really have a lot of transparency into like what they're doing. And like that network of nodes or validators could be like one entity. And you, you, there's just less, there's less transparency of what's going on there. Here, it's super transparent, but the trade-off is that the relayer has this two hour waiting period before they get paid back. The cost of that turns out is not that high because a relayer doesn't need to be paid that much money to, to lend money for two hours. But just to really answer your question, which is like, I think is a good one, like there is a trade-off here. A relayer has a capital cost to provide liquidity instantly while still allowing for there to be this challenge period where we can say, hey, something, that, that relay, you, you didn't, relayer, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. So are those relayers essentially providing unsecured loans for two hours? for a fee? Is that, or am I not understanding this right? They're very much secured, right? They get to, the relayer gets paid back at a liquidity pool. So they're very much secured loans, but they are providing a loan for two hours. Okay, got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, it fits right into the scalability trilemma. But it's like, you know, that's what you try to do, right? When you're trying to, to figure out scale and efficiency, it's like, what are you willing to sacrifice? And then how do you mitigate that as, as little as possible, right? Yeah. And again, like different use cases, you go in this trilemma and different use cases hit on different points here. Right. Turns out the way people use bridges, um, it's not hard to have a relayer charge a small fee that adds up over time to do these two-hour loans. Turns out that actually like kind of works, right? And that's because um, like, things aren't super spiky like people are kind of bridging relatively consistently there's like it, 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 it like the way the bridge is getting used this works 
Um, there could be, there are other use cases though, where maybe that doesn't work very well. And like everyone's trying to bridge all at exactly the same time. And this two hour delay becomes incredibly costly. Um, uh, in this bridge use case, it's not. And I think that works pretty well. And then um, Justin, as time goes on and we get even more confident with the system, that two hour delay can become shorter, which makes the whole thing more efficient. So maybe that delay becomes half an hour. Um, maybe that delay is shorter on L2 to L2 bridges um, because it, it, you, you know you mine blocks faster. It's like you don't have, um, there's not as many spam attacks. On Ethereum, you need a fairly long delay because like, if gas costs shoot to the moon and someone can't get, the can't get a transaction through, that's problematic. So we need it to be long enough that even in extreme distressed um, circumstances, someone can still get a dispute transaction through. So there's all these optimizations that kind of happen over time and you figure out, you figure out what works in these trade-offs. Yeah, it feels like UMA and the Across Bridge have pretty much permit or positioned themselves pretty well for the multi-chain future. So what do you see as like UMA's role uh, in this multi-chain future? And do you feel like you're, you are positioned as well? One nerdy view here. Um, when you're on a single blockchain, uh, atomic transactions, atomicity, atomicity makes a lot, is really important. Being able to do things like flash loans, everything happens in one transaction and you're done. Um, the optimistic oracle design works less well in that environment because in the optimistic oracle design, you need to uh, wait this dispute period or this challenge period. And so if you're trying to do things atomically, well, it's kind of annoying. You, you have to program it differently. But in a cross-chain world, there is no atomic transactions anymore. They're not possible. It's like something happens on one blockchain and then like you got to get it to another blockchain. They're, they're, they don't happen at the same time. And so an optimistic system actually works really well here because there's already a break, a delay between these two things. And so you can prove things on one chain versus another optimistically in a way that like fits with, with the, the system. And this is like a super nerdy answer, but basically because a multi-chain world is fundamentally not atomic in lots of ways, the optimistic Oracle works really well uh, because it's not an atomic system and it can communicate these truths between blockchains. So this sounds like it's that two hour delay is a feature, not a bug, correct? I kind of think so, right? And you can think of like, um, like, look, everything multi-chain and Vitalik made these points too, everything multi-chain becomes significantly more complex. You now have to think about the security guarantees of different chains and how they interact and all that. Um, but introducing a delay or a challenge period feels like a safe way to, to uh, one of the safer ways you can understand the complexity or sort of sandbox um, what's going on on different chains. Um, so I think that's really useful and really important. Um, that's like the nerdy answer. And then, you know, on just a really pragmatic So, and then on a pragmatic and practical level, um, uh, a multi-chain world, people are using blockchains to do more things. We're going like, uh, to build social media on a blockchain. We're going to build all this other sort of stuff. So the, the use cases, the types of data we need um, in those applications, I think are just much broader, right? Um, uh, and we're not just needing price data. We need all sorts, and it's certainly not price data on just like the top 50 cryptocurrencies. We need all sorts of other types of data. Um, uh, and that's where this design works really well. Being able to prove any bit of arbitrary data onto any blockchain, like that's a feature. Absolutely. Um, so I've, I've got a couple other questions, but they're not necessarily related to Uma specifically. So before we get into those, you know, is there anything else that you want to touch on that maybe I, you haven't had a chance to address or I haven't asked? Um, the only other point I, I, I'd actually say for your audience is like across a uh, as a protocol, that's again, something we started as sort of an internal hackathon and it's grown into a full on full fledged product across V2 launched three weeks ago. And I, again, like 
to the credit of um, our community and our engineering team, um, it's a really amazing piece of technology. Um, we are also like launching it into the community and we, I'd encourage your audience to get involved in our community um, because, you know, it doesn't have a token yet. We promised the community that there will be a token associated with it. And we're trying to launch the thing really fairly and have it be a, 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 a community owned um, piece of technology. Um, and so basically your audience like get involved in the across discord pay attention i think there's cool stuff that's going to be happening there i mean i didn't even ask win token but you offered that up anyway so kudos to you <laughs> we've been trans we've been transparent about it but i think yeah it's like in bearish markets it's a cool time to be a builder and i think it's a really cool time to get involved in um in communities of promising technologies and I, I think we are, I think across is a promising technology. And uh, uh, yeah, just love to kind of build in this environment um, with the people in our community. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you talked about the bear market because that is actually my next question. And uh, well, not, you know, not from a price standpoint, but, you know, you and your team, Uma, have been around for quite some time and you've seen bear markets. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, what advice do you have for developers and teams that are building in the bear market? Like what should they focus on? What advice do you have? I like bear markets because you get to focus on um, the tech and the ideas and not like the hype in the marketing. Right. And if anything, I think Uma, like we, uh, I think we outperform on our ideas and our tech and we underperform on our marketing. Um, uh, it's kind of just culturally who we are. Um, so I, I like that. And I guess my advice would be focus on the tech and the community and the ideas. Um, uh, that's the, this is the time to do that. This is the time to really like let do deep thinking, come up with innovative ideas and try to build them. Um, and I think that's sort of a time to be celebrated versus just like the go, 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 like number go up. Let's, let's chill and market. Like that has its use. Trust me. Like the whole cycle of crypto, it's got its own brilliant game theory where the hype cycle of crypto gets smart people involved in the space. I'm convinced of that. Um, uh, but the, it is in the bear markets where the like, the people that are that really get it, those are the ones that stick around, and those are great people. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and it's I think it's refreshing a little bit. I mean, obviously, like the price action is not great, but it's refreshing to kind of see that, you know, there were all of these basically centralized companies that were using DeFi on the back end that were calling themselves DeFi that actually weren't. Right. I think some of them were saying unbank yourself by giving us your money and we'll invest it for you. Like that's that's not how this works. And so it's refreshing to uh, kind of see the bear market uh, kind of provide a cleansing of that environment, if you will. I don't know if you have any similar thoughts on that, but it's, it's nice to see just kind of like, in my mind, the blue chip DeFi projects who do have sound tokenomics and sound just, I guess, code architecture kind of rise to the top again do you have any thoughts on that yeah i can pound the table hard on that justin like so i have a weird career path like i was a relatively young guy sitting at the goldman sachs uh trading desk um in 2008 and 2009 um when like lehman brothers was blowing up for example and i was there like on the weekend markets are closed i was a treasury trader but the swaps traders sat right beside me Swaps traders had no fucking clue what the risk exposure with Lehman was, right? Um, and uh, I mean, I was super impressed with the risk management of the decisions getting made there. But this was an example of like what was wrong with the financial system we had. There was just no transparency into where the risk was. And Goldman was the best of anybody at managing this. A lot of people will hate on Goldman, and that's fine too. But like these guys were at least good at their job. Right. And um, the, I watched the swaps desk just sit there, like making 
crazy guesses about the risk, what the risk exposure was and trying frantically to try to get their hands around it. And that's the whole, like, that's what DeFi is supposed to solve, right? Like, you can see what people's risk exposure is. And so if you want to know something I'm just pissed off about, it is this CeFi um, that people have no idea what the risk exposure of these entities are, were, and that's entirely what we're trying to solve. And so uh, kudos to, like, the actual DeFi projects, like, Maker, Compound, Ave, like these guys, and kudos to the communities around them too that are analyzing those positions and being like, what's safe, what's not safe, like let's manage it. There's transparency there. And it is a huge innovation for there to be transparency there. And the other stuff is not DeFi. It gives the space a bad name and it sucks. It's like really, I feel, I really feel bad for retail consumers that got hurt with something like you know, Celsius. That's just not the way it's supposed to be. That was not what the promise is. And so let's just make sure we're, we don't do that again. That's not DeFi. That was like traditional banking in a regulatory arbitrage loophole that shouldn't have existed. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think obviously you and I are on the same page. And I think the majority of people who are still on crypto Twitter are probably also on the same page there. Um, and the, the, those that aren't, uh, who came in through this cycle, hopefully they stick around and they learn because, I don't know, I feel like the bear market does put principles first, which is also exciting. Okay, like I said, kind of a refresher and a cleansing. Um, but anyway, so we're, we're kind of over time, actually. Uh, but yeah, so I just want to say, uh, you know, where can people go to find out more about yourself, Art, and then the UMA protocol and the Across Bridge? Yeah, to reach me, best place is Twitter. I'm Hal2001, H-A-L-2001 on Twitter. Um, Boruma, uh, also Twitter's great, and or join our Discord community. Um, just go to umaproject.org, and our links are, are there. And for across, uh, again, Discord and Twitter, um, the bridge itself is at the domain across.2, across.to. Um, I also think people should check out our bridge. It's a great way to bridge between Polygon and L2s and Ethereum works great. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks again for coming, Hart. I really appreciate it. And uh, anyone who's watching live on YouTube, Polygon TV, thank you for watching. I said live, but it's recorded. Thank you for watching the video. And uh, for anyone who's listening on Spotify, thanks for listening on Spotify as well. Hart, thanks again. Really appreciate you coming on. Really excited about what's going on with Uma and Across. Justin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.